Good morning, everybody, and thank you for coming. Welcome, welcome to Oxford. Welcome back to Oxford. Um, I'm very pleased to see so many people in a lecture at 9.30. I'm sure you were all as diligent as that when you were uh, undergraduates. Uh, my name is Peter Frankopan. I am a senior research fellow at Worcester College. Uh, I have a confession to make. I wasn't an undergraduate here. Uh, I was at Cambridge and then saw the light. I came in to do my, my, my DPhil uh, longer ago than you might guess and longer ago than I would think. Uh, I'm also the director of the Oxford Centre for Byzantine Research, uh, which is a postdoctoral virtual research centre based here in Oxford. Looking around, I don't think any of you look young enough uh, to have studied when the Yuanyu Centre, which you're in now, uh, was built. I may be wrong, but um, anyway. Uh, but classics and Byzantine studies are having something of a, a surge in Oxford at the moment. Um, the university is by far the leading institution uh, in the UK for uh, Byzantine studies and its related areas. We're very fortunate that we have professors in Armenian, in Syriac, and in related areas that make us a particularly strong subject. And for that reason, um, we set up the research centre about a year ago. And you'll be pleased to know it's thriving, although you'll also be pleased to know that we're very keen on donations. <laughs> That's off my list, tick. <laughs> um, I don't know how many of you will have studied uh, Byzantine studies here when you're undergraduates. There has been a, a couple of papers that have been available um, for about nearly a century now, and two of them, Justinian in the reign of the age of Justinian and Muhammad, and Byzantium in the reign of Constantine, the progenitors have been on the history syllabus for more than 40 years. Uh, the title of my lecture, it's, uh, it's not one, well it is, I mean, it's very nice, it's the kaleidoscope. When we launched the research centre, I was asked to, uh, by the university newspaper, Blueprint, um, to talk a little bit about Byzantine studies and why I thought it was fun. And uh, you'll see when I start, I sometimes won't stop. But it was really to say that every morning, as a Byzantine historian, I wake up and there is something different. Uh, which might sound odd for a subject that goes back, well, 1,700 years, and broadly speaking will come to an end 1453 or thereabouts. But, but every day there's a series of, of surprises um, and, and new things to think about. There's a constant sort of nagging, it was not as bad as toothache, but constant nagging question <laughs> that you're missing something, or that a source that you think is straightforward and down the line is in fact sending up the garden path. Um, these classical and ancient sources, Byzantine sources, as well as, as well as standard classical sources, are very, very good at making you feel that you can trust them. They're all like reading the Times, sort of circa 1850. They're reliable, they're objective, they're fair, they're balanced. And then you have the occasional ones which are over the top and you can slightly put them to one side. But all of these sources, you need to be on your guard and every day wondering what it is that you're not being told, or on a bad day, not being able to see what it is that they're getting at, because there is always something there. Uh, now, the main source that I have worked on, and the area that I work on, um, is uh, the, the later 11th and early 12th centuries, and the reign of an emperor called uh, Alexius I Comnenus. Uh, the, the period where he becomes emperor in 1081 triggers a series of, of events that ultimately um, end up with the First Crusade and the mobilization of all of Western Europe um, to march to Jerusalem, which they capture in 1099. Now, the main source for this period, in fact, the only narrative source that covers that reign as a whole, 
is an amazing um, account written by his, by his daughter, Anna Comnini. Uh, it's the first account written in the European language, or the first historical narrative, I beg your pardon, written in the European language by a woman. Uh, it's one of the very few sources written by a member of the imperial household or the imperial family. It's written in very stylized, classicizing Greek, where the author is very keen to let you know what she's read. But as an example of these kind of bear traps, uh, sometimes there will be quotes from Psalms or from classical sources that there's just something wrong, or there's a word that's misplaced, or there's a case ending that's not right. And she is doing that for a reason. She's telegraphing to her audience and to us something. And so it's a little bit like walking through, um, through well, it's not as dangerous as walking through a minefield, luckily, but it is, um, it, it's a very tricky source to get right. And uh, why I've been extremely fortunate is that although it's very well known, uh, hugely uh, used by crusade historians, it's a central Byzantine middle text of the, of the middle period, um, but it's been almost completely misunderstood and unexplored. Um, the order of events that, uh, that are presented it is almost always erratic, and there's almost always a reason for it. Although Anna was writing 40 years after the events she describes, she was able to rely on an astonishing range of sources from southern Italy, from um, military notes, from official court agreements made between the Emperor and Venice, or letters sent by the Imperial Chancery to Germany. And teasing apart what she, what she does with these gives us a very different picture of the Byzantine Empire as a whole. So that, that's, what, that's what I worked I, I, I looked on Google Images last night before to see if there, any, there aren't any representations of Anna. I know that. But every now and again, um, things pop up. People play a lot of video games. Byzantium, for some reason, is a very popular uh, sort of medieval conquest type. But so, uh, let's see if I can find, well, I'll show you what I found. Well, it moves. Uh, there we go. Anna of Byzantium. She's been uh, made a saint by Tracy Barrett in a, in a novel, which, which I'm afraid to say I haven't read, but demure, scholarly with her books and so on. Um, here's another one. <laughs> German cartoon, rather more foxy, no halo. Uh, and then, more incongruously, uh, that, according to uh, the mighty Google, is Anna Comnina. The <laughs> weather's always right. <laughs> There's no dispute about that one. Excuse me, where did she live? And I beg your pardon. She lived in Constantinople, born in 1083, and died in around about 1155. And um, she was an extraordinarily interesting woman. She, um, she attempted to take power after her father died to install her husband on the throne, who was also a historian, a general, highly respected figure at the imperial court. And uh, having been, uh, well, having gone into some form of exile, she started to build around her a circle of leading intellectuals in Constantinople in the early 12th, in the early 12th century. And um, uh, I'm just going to shut down. And Anna was the first person to commission commentaries on the Nicomachean Ethics. So the reason how these texts came to Robert Grosseteste and Thomas Aquinas and formed the basis of medieval Christian philosophy was all through Anna's patronage of dusting off well, pagan texts that hadn't been read for a long time and providing commentaries and working out how these sources could be used by those who look back towards the past of classical Rome and increasingly classical Greece, in Byzantium's case, uh, and trying to uh, ally those with, with Christianity. So 
so anyway, so this is the front piece of my, my publisher told me I have to put this up, otherwise I won't get a copy next time I go to uh, <laughs> uh, a book on the First Crusade, which has been being built by my publisher in the States, Harvard University Press, as the first new interpretation of the Crusade for 900 years. So no, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Um, anyway, so it's a complete rewrite of, of the Crusade. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what it is that I'm saying, but basically, um, the Byzantine world has, for all sorts of reasons, been just parked to one side, and I, for the life of me, can't understand why, but I'm thrilled that it hasn't, um, personally speaking. Anyway. Uh, so the theme of today's, of this weekend, I beg your pardon, is, is 21st century challenges, and, and, and at first glance, the Byzantine Empire, even for a passionate person like me, uh, it might not seem at first glance to hold too many answers. But as luck would have it, uh, I'm assured by the alumni office that you're all the cleverest from your vintages. Uh, <laughs> I assume everyone in here has a first class degree, I'm not even going to ask. But, but some of your less able peers are perhaps not so enlightened as you are. And I'm afraid to say that I've been to too many dinner parties, drink parties over the years where the words Byzantine Empire strike fear, blank looks, uh, embarrassed shuffle, the worry of where, when, why, and wouldn't it be just a little bit easier to talk about holidays? Uh, uh, but that's, that's better than in, in, in the United States, I've had, been lucky to be a visiting professor there a couple of times. Uh, and there, there's no response at all when you say Byzantine. <laughs> but partly, it took me a while to realise that if you say Byzantine, they don't, but Byzantine, they'll understand. So that unlocked some of it. But even then, again, in, in New York, too many times, Byzantine history, over a bit of noise in a cocktail party, becomes business and industry. <laughs> uh, so if anybody is here for the business and industry talk, uh, you're, you're in the wrong place. Anyway, so, but, so Byzantine has, has all sorts of uh, antiquarian, exotic, arcane, slightly suspect. And as a, as a brand, it really hasn't done very well. I've been looking through um, Hansard to see how our beloved MPs use the word Byzantine. Uh, and I'm not going to name them. Uh, but the kinds of things that, that come up almost every single time, but the word Byzantine appears a lot in parliamentary debates. Yeah, the right, my, my honourable friend is right to call the language Byzantine because the language is extraordinary. Or the term Byzantine complexity appears hundreds of times when you, uh, when you look through. Or the most recent one is one MP who is very hopeful that, quote, our tax system will be less prone to the Byzantine schemes dreamt up at Canary Wharf. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid to say, dear audience, uh, some of these people, almost all men, we're educated here. <laughs> uh, but clearly they don't know what they're talking about. Um, the, the Byzantine tax, taxation system was a marvel of sophistication, of clarity, and of, well, fairness is a, is a loaded word, but it was a well-oiled machine, collecting money from the provinces with no uh, internet submissions of your tax returns, and so on, was, was, quite, was, a, was a feat. And government expenditure was done in a way that was that worked out in Imperial Rome and funded an empire that lasted for centuries. Uh, the bureaucracy was a well-oiled machine run by technocrats, highly educated uh, young men who'd had outstanding educations, <coughs> were often multilingual, were able to understand and look at how other uh, countries, other states, ran their affairs. They could build and engineer things like the 
Cathedral of St. Sophia, which for a thousand years was the biggest structure in Europe. Uh, they were able to design uh, and refine Roman imperial um, ships to create dromons, fast ships, low-keeled low low warboats that could travel at about 10 knots, powered by all. Uh, they were able to develop aqueducts that could keep a city of perhaps half a million people and perhaps even more fully supplied with water. So the idea of the Byzantine world being a complex, difficult, smoke and mirrors one uh, it is one that is, um, has been profoundly misused. Uh, and the problem really is that, that the Byzantine Empire uh, and the adjective and so on have been on, on the receiving end of one of the most sustained uh, and um, vicious smear campaigns uh, of all time. And really this crystallises uh, at the time of the First Crusade, uh, where a profound, a profound series of misunderstandings and antagonisms arise between the emperor in Constantinople and the new Latin states in Jerusalem. But broadly, based around the fact that the emperor extracted oaths from the crusade leaders as they came through Constantinople, sworn over the crown of thorns and the most precious relics in Christendom, that they would agree to hand back all towns, all fortresses, villages, possessions that had previously been Byzantine to the emperor in return for his support and aid and so on. And over the course of the crusade, uh, where the Western army went through uh, shocking deprivation, disease, very many killed, um, and, and horrendous pressure from uh, attacking armies. Uh, the purpose of the crusade, the shape of the crusade, changed. And with it, there came a need for Westerners who found themselves in possession of these towns, who didn't want to hand them back to the emperor, and create their own lordships in the east to explain how that had happened. And one of the most significant ways that worked was through a portrayal of Alexius the Emperor and of Byzantium uh, across Europe as people devoured these stories of Christian bravery and how the Holy Sepulchre came to back in Christian hands after 600 years. Central to that message was the image of Alexius and the Byzantines as wily, as devious, untrustworthy. And these stories started to magnify in the 12th century out of control where you can't find where these reports came from. So what happened to start with were accusations that Alexius hadn't played it straight, that he hadn't done enough to support. That quickly <coughs> escalated towards him rejoicing when he heard of Turks defeating Crusaders, and then that moves to the next wave down, which is his mother being a witch. Uh, he'd pass, it being said in Western Europe to be passing laws that all families with more than one daughter would have to give one up to prostitution. They would have to give up, give up if they had more than one son, to give up a son to be castrated for no obvious reason. But all of this created an image of Byzantium that has had almost no chance of, of recovery. And the strident West that emerged as a result of the First Crusade came at the expense of building itself over the back of the Byzantines. And, and of course, as, as you all know, uh, they didn't call themselves Byzantines. These were Romans. Uh, they had Roman law. They were continuations of Rome, the city of Constantinople, was founded by the Emperor Constantine uh, in the beginning of the 4th century. And these emperors, these people, called themselves Romans, and they were Roman. The West, as I'll talk about a little bit, ha had collapsed uh, in various different ways. But the East was the continuator and, and was, was the, had the legacy of Rome. And that was a legacy and heritage that started to be claimed um, by others. So, what, what, what can we say about the 21st century and Byzantium to keep your attention? Well, 
The first answer is to, to be, just to tell you briefly why and how the 21st century is relevant to Byzantium rather than the other way around. It might seem odd uh, talking about these subjects that happened a long time ago in Constantinople, 1500 years, but it's an incredibly fast-moving, vibrant subject at the moment. Uh, it's true, a lot of what, what I do is source-based, but there are all sorts of new impulses, new discoveries that allow the subject to uh, completely transform how we see it. So, for example, I've been looking in the last couple of weeks at a, at a plague that erupts that brought up through Ethiopia, through the Nile Delta, and decimates the eastern Mediterranean and parts of Western Europe in the 6th century. And there's a lot of discussion among, in the medical world um, about understanding how infectious diseases spread. And some of my colleagues here in epidemiology uh, have, been, have had a lot of funding to look at how things like AIDS or non-contact, bird flu and so on, can spread. And by seeing how they've modeled them, their pathogens, you can understand very much more easily about how these um, diseases travel. And there's one school of thought now that suggests that this wasn't plague at all, it was some form of typhus, and that it was to do with uh, tolerance levels falling because of some cataclysmic climate event that had caused global temperatures to drop by three to four degrees. So I've been looking at um, ice cores from, from Greenland, from the, the Greenland Ice Sheet Project 2, where you can see distributions of upper atmosphere particles that have come back down to Earth and see the, the um, sulfur particles to see what kind of volcanic activity there'd been around then. Uh, but most interesting, uh, I mean, and this is, what I, this is where, where people tell me off at dinner parties and say there can't be anything interesting about Byzantium. Uh, I've been looking at how comets break up uh, airburst and how the Siberian 1908 comet uh, flattened vast areas of, uh, of Siberia. The reason being that soot that goes up into the air um, can create these kind of climate changes. And when that has, oh, well, as we know, uh, and if it happens on a large enough scale, it causes crops to fail. Uh, that causes economic downturns. That causes uh, increased intolerance because of lack of, uh, of food and calories. Uh, and that causes um, susceptibility to, to, to disease. And so the theories that the sources tell us about it's an Ethiopian disease that spreads this way and that way may have some completely other cause and other, um, uh, other explanation. And in fact, that in itself is quite useful to understand how these things happen. Is that why there were no major plague outbreaks for the next five or 600 years? Should we be looking for similar uh, explanations in the middle of the 14th century when the Black Death again uh, devastates Western Europe. So, trying to understand how these things work, and it's, I sometimes feel like a, like a child in a, in a sweet shop. I've been looking at how nuclear winters were modelled by Soviet scientists in the 1980s to see exactly how much, I can tell you how much soot is needed in the, in the upper atmosphere and what size and radius comet, but I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I always understand uh, what I'm told. So, I scratch my head with that one. <laughs> to work out what size the comet radius would have to be. But the long and short of it is not that big. <laughs> uh, so it's a very exciting um, subject right now that's moving fast. There, there's been a lot of um, new discoveries in terms of the archaeology, finding of an important shipwreck off the coast of Rhodes where we can see what was being transported by who and when, which gives us a much clearer idea of, of the complex exchange um, patterns. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Byzantine period. 
And so there are lots of new questions that this also throws up. And they, they can't always be answered, but I, if I've learned anything uh, being, being here, it's to be always trying to ask, ask questions and try and see where that, that, that takes us. So the, the second answer, I suppose, is not what does the 21st century do for Byzantium, but what does, the, what does Byzantium do for the 21st century? Well, I'm sure you're going to hear lots about new world orders and the change of power from west to east and so on, but maybe, maybe that's right. Uh, but there's certainly a greater deal of interest in the Byzantine world because of its uh, history and its, its location. And I, I slightly struggled to find really good maps. This is the Byzantine Empire, slightly out of focus, uh, around about the year 560, the reign of the Emperor Justinian. Uh, when Justinian comes to the throne, uh, most of this western part of the uh, empire, the old Roman Empire, had been lost, and as had North Africa. And through a series of uh, outstanding campaigns, uh, mostly led by a general first, sorry, one of the greatest generals of all time, there'd been a, a massive reconquest. But why I wanted to show this was really within the Byzantine world, there is a, a, a radar constantly on the lookout across its boundaries. And although Constantinople, uh, based here, uh, controlled this area, actually its range of vision was, was enormous, well beyond uh, the Caspian Sea. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about some of the texts and what, what they tell us about what the Byzantines were looking for and why. But, but again, this was a, 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 um, a smart military and diplomatic state looking always beyond its own frontiers rather than um, just trying to try to maintain the borders. For example, it talks about, uh, there's a text called the De Ministrando Imperio, a compilation put together in about the tenth, middle of the 10th century that talks about the various tribes um, step, uh, across the steppes of the north of the Black Sea up to the Caspian. And in great detail, it records uh, Pechenegs who were described by one German envoy as quite honestly, the most disgusting people God has put on this earth. Uh, and the Petronates in this period were some, somewhere broadly across this area here. And in great detail, the Byzantines recorded how succession worked when the leader died, that it wasn't a vertical structure that the son would inherit power, but it would be diffused through cousins. Careful listing of how the tribe internally broke down, that there were eight sub-tribes, and these themselves were divided into about 40 headed by 40 of the little princelings. Uh, he, it lists where they pastured, at what time of year, when they moved around. High-grade intelligence information <coughs> gathering so that they could know where they are. Now, again, I'm not going to ask any of you, uh, but I'm sure you all know where to put on the map places like Dagestan, Azerbaijan, Crimea, the Caucasus, these complex states Sorry, uh, North Ossetia, South Ossetia, all these places which uh, we're reading about more in the papers, and for good reason. They have oil, they're transit countries, they're important in the uh, recalibration of Russian power, uh, whatever that's going to do in the next half, half century, and of course, uh, as gateways through towards Iran and Iraq and the oil fields. So, in these places, what we should be doing now, of course, in the 21st century, is doing the same thing that they did in Constantinople finding about who these people were, who they are, who leads them, what's going to happen. And uh, in Dagestan, which is here on the Caspian Sea, uh, they have a football club that is richer than ours. They just offered last weekend Jose Mourinho, the Real Madrid manager, for two years to manage them, 43 million. 
if you believe what you read in the papers, <laughs> which uh, maybe is something different. And in Dagestan, there, there are 69 languages spoken, which is more than in the European Union. So this is a, it's a region that's fast growing uh, and is, is developing very quickly. The, in the year that Lehman Brothers went bust and the global economy went, went south, Azerbaijan's GDP went up by 40%. Uh, Turkey's the fastest growing economy uh, in, in Europe at the moment. Well, probably the only growing Europe in Europe. Uh, but this is a region which uh, is becoming more and more prominent. Uh, and for that reason, I, I suppose not, not entirely surprising, but you're starting to find US policy analysts looking at where was Byzantium and how did it manage to hang on for a thousand years? Or almost the total opposite of how we tend to look at Byzantium, the sort of arcane and you know, exotic and smoke and mirrors, nothing to learn, it's all, it's all somehow being done by magic. But to really understand how did the city of Constantinople manage to dominate um, the steppes, Asia Minor, and in different periods, uh, different times, and, and to endure uh, for so long. And of course its relations with Islam spread over uh, a thousand years, just under. Uh, it's in dealing with emerging people who appear from nowhere. Sort of the irritable Balkans and Central Asia, that's my kaleidoscope. Uh, that's my region of looking north, south, east, and west and not knowing who, who you're um, going, to, going to find. Now, people find Byzantine studies in different ways. Uh, classicists sometimes uh, take a wrong turning and, and keep going after uh, the glory days of Imperial Rome and find themselves in, in the East. Uh, theologians uh, perhaps don't have too many places else to turn. Um, but, uh, well, because, it's, because Christianity is an Eastern religion, in Asia Minor, and Jerusalem, this is where it came from, and this is where all the texts were, were preserved and written, of course. Uh, I, I, in fact, came from, from Russia. I was in 19th and 20th century. Um, when I was an undergraduate, so a specialist is probably pushing it. But in my last year at, at Cambridge, I took a paper on um, the origins of early Russia, trying to understand how, where these people had come from, and, and thought, um, I found out at 9 o'clock on a Friday morning that probably wasn't the best choice. But I was completely transfixed. Within the first lecture, uh, I was read out the sermon by, by um, the patriarch Photius, the head of the Orthodox Church in Constantinople. Do you recollect that unbearable and bitter hour when the barbarians' boats came sailing down at you, wafting a breath of cruelty, savagery, and murder, as Russian raiders who'd appeared from nowhere, not on the Byzantine radar, keeping a, a close eye over the North Black Sea, but a long-range range that had come more or less from Scandinavia on short boats had terrified inhabitants of the capital city. No one knew who these people were, what they wanted. Whispers at night that the city itself had fallen, that this was just the first wave of many. And I was completely, completely transfixed. Or the famous story about the Empress Theodora stripping herself naked and, and putting pieces of grain where pieces of grain shouldn't be put, and then having ducks uh, peck up things that they shouldn't be pecking out. Uh, fast, absolutely fascinating. All my passionate friends uh, slaughtering uh, local rulers and turning their skulls into goblets lined with silver that they could drink, drink from. Uh, all the patriarchals and other patriarchals had to know less um, scary, probably, than Photius, who had a stable of racehorses that he refused to feed on wheat and barley, only on pistachios, and the best quality raisins and dried figs. <laughs> Completely hooked. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, but the, the Byzantine, I, I suppose my starting point is that uh, it was extraordinarily successful. 
Um, and in terms of the sort of territorial, you know, there's a little bit, some names filled in, again, about the same time, marking where coins have been minted. This is the extent in about, um, in about 560. Uh, this is about the middle of the 11th century. Uh, you'll see now that all of the North African provinces, southern Spain, have gone. Uh, the core territories of Asia Minor and the Balkans. Uh, and this is after a century of expansion where, for about 200 years uh, before, uh, the Arabs had been up to more or less halfway across Eastern Asia Minor. And then towards the very end, in the, again, slightly blurred, uh, Constantinople in purple, and then these little dots, subsidiary states, statelets that have either sprung up or had emerged, but broadly by 1450, Constantinople and its immediate interland, and, 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 and that was it. Uh, this is the first map of Constantinople. Uh, in spite of the territorial size changing, uh, the empire was incredibly constant. And one of the surprising things at a time when Western Europe starts to really um, argue with itself about who has political power, what role does the church have, under what circumstances can we commit tyrannicide, John of Salisbury, how, how, do we, how do we structure our state, and how does God fit into all of this? Uh, the Byzantines were not interested, because they were absolutely convinced that they had it right. The imperial order that they had was the right one. It had worked. Uh, there was no angst. It was a tried and tested running of the state, but that was it. And of course, Roman imperial order was reinforced by the adoption of Christianity that gives an utter conviction that you're not just doing what is right from your forefathers, but that God is, is with you. And that's very helpful even in the bad times. So as the first waves of Western rampages start to take over Western Rome's province, provinces, you have uh, writers trying to make sense of it. One, Salvian tried to talk about the Huns and the Goths and these guys who turned up and uh, started to destroy the West. Why has God allowed us to become weaker than all the tribal peoples? Why has he allowed us to be defeated by the barbarians and subjected to the rule of our enemies? Well, the answer was the same as it was for centuries, which is this was divine judgment and divine justice for our sins. And that, that's a theme that comes up repeatedly when the empire is under pressure. In, in the late 11th century, when Byzantium is in, in real trouble, uh, being attacked from all sides, uh, a leading cleric stands up and delivers a speech in front of the emperor, and he says, uh, not just are we all sinners, but the biggest sinner is actually you, uh, to the ruler, uh, and it's because you've taken power in a way that God had, hadn't decided, hadn't divined, and therefore we now pay the punishment. So God is to, will, will punish and will turn his back on the empire if he needs to. Of course, it cuts both ways. When the empire is successful, this is, of course, a clear sign that uh, you're being protected and you have the favour of, uh, of God. Uh, and there are endless inscriptions, um, proclamations, new laws that will talk in these kind of languages that God has inspired us to these successes and with his help and with divine aid will hasten to restore even more territories and so on. And really, who could argue, who could argue with that? So... Uh, there's a lot of this d debate now about when, what, what happened in the West when, when Western Rome came under pressure. And there's a shift in language away from words like crisis, or very famously, the assassination of Roman culture by the Germanic peoples, written by a French scholar. Uh, we now talk about this in terms of transition and change rather than crisis. 
So when St. Jerome had heard about the sack of Rome in 410, his, his, his hysterical, who could believe it, who could believe that Rome, built through the ages of conquest for the world, had fallen, offering his tears for whatever. But, but the West was built up with a series of successor kingdoms, and in fact its, its decline took, took a while to, to really take effect, while the East continued to grow. Uh, but the real turning point in the history of Europe, really, comes not with the, the Germanic tribes and so on, but in about 600, uh, possibly as a result of a climate event, but there are, also, there are other important causes too. But broadly speaking, the West goes into uh, what we used to be able to call the Dark Ages, but that's now thought to be too unfair on people who are doing the best that they could. But things like mosaic floors, even stone floors, covered roofs, just disappears. Pottery that had been exported all over the Mediterranean, um, you find in the island of Iona, pottery manufactured in North Africa, it, it just collapses. Um, there's no um, major building work that goes on in the West uh, of any kind. And landed families that used to own um, international pan-Mediterranean property portfolios uh, just, uh, just collapse. And we know something about that from, from papyri from, from the Nile where uh, you can see the effect of chronic economic and, and demographic contraction. In the case of Eastern Rome, or New Rome, Byzantium, uh, it follows a different path. There is pressure from um, the neighboring um, tribes, the, the Huns, for example. Also disgusting people. They look like they're melted into their animals and... They look like the kind of grotesque gargoyles you might find attached to bridges or ugly houses, according to one source. Um, but around about 650, uh, the Eastern Empire goes into a period of um, semi-hibernation and onto permanent defensive. Uh, the result of the rising tide of, of Islam and Islamic, Islamic conquests that sweep through the Levant, North Africa, into Spain and, and up into France. And of course, uh, and it's a nice lesson for the 21st century, although not perhaps difficult to work out, as you lose territory and as you come under pressure, your expenditure needs to rise because you need to equip and maintain an army. As you uh, do that, you need to tax more highly to pay for it. As you tax more highly, your productivity goes down. As your productivity goes down, things like inflation kick in. That makes feeding the army and supplying the army more expensive. That makes it more inefficient, etc., etc. And you, you very quickly hit a, a spiral of, uh, of catastrophe. And on the ground, uh, forget about how the state works, that leads to enormous change. So pollen counts, for example, from central Anatolia, tell you that around about 650 AD, there's a total change in, in agriculture. What had been olive groves cultivated with, sort of a, with great, a great expense uh, starts to slip into forest. There are just not enough people on the land to make it work. Uh, in northern Syria, which is one of the most robust parts of the empire, uh, again, there's just, uh, it, it, it's a disaster. In Aphrodisias, in Western Asia Minor, they're like ghost towns. Aphrodisias is like a ghost town. Statues are left on their columns, deserted, until they fall over in the wind. And this leads to a reboot, and it's one of the reasons why Byzantium survives, I guess, a total reboot of, uh, of the state structure. There's a massive reorganization of how the empire is, is organized, broken up into themes and provinces, led by a military commander whose job is, in the first instance, to raise 
tax, either through what money, through coin, or through military obligation. There's an intellectual response, a knee-jerk of iconoclasm, where there's an attempt to understand how God can be putting up when we're reforming, we're trying to be ascetic, we're not anymore sinning, we're doing the best we can, and yet the defeats still, still come on. Uh, and then the big question for the, for the army is how to develop tactics that are efficient and work. So it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a night and day change from the good old days where taxes could occasionally be repealed, leading to wild celebrations, week-long feasts, candles, hymns, psalms, and let's hope, you know, if Mr. Osborne does that to our VAT, I'll do the same. <laughs> dress in white and process through the streets. Uh, this is re re reversed into a world where candelabra, silver plate, are taken from Saint Sophia to be melted down um, and used to fund the troops. So I think, as we're all painfully aware, uh, balancing the books is very difficult, and ultimately, what well, the amazing thing is how quickly the, these reverses can push a state that's flourished into, into the defensive. Um, uh, that then creates a different character to the empire, where previously otium and the expending of leisure and bathing and so on had been great Roman pastimes and uh, scholarship and so on. Uh, the Byzantines become, again, in contrast to what we might think, they become primarily a military power, where militarism affects the clothes that they wear, the imagery they have, uh, and, uh, and, and how their society functions, where bravery and valour become highly prized. So this idea of the Byzantines as a, as a strong fighting military machine is, is something which I think needs to be uh, sort of kicked back into, uh, into circulation. For example, the Saint Theodore, and particularly Saint Theodore, but Demetrius and Saint George, these military saints start to appear very regularly all Byzantine officials had a lead seal which they would stamp any order or formal communication they would have. And uh, there, was, there seems to be a personal choice for who you would represent. You have a saint on one side invoking God or that saint to protect you, and on the other side your name and duties so that the recipient could see who it's from. And the incidence of the military saints appearing on these lead seals, of which there are nearly 100,000, uh, it's, it's astonishing. This is, it's a society, as I say, that where militarism became, um, became increasingly important. Oops. Uh, no more so than in the reign of Basil II, uh, better known as the Bulgar Slayer, which is how I think all of us would like to be known one day, uh, who sends back 15,000 um, men who captured, uh, 99 out of every 100 blinded, and the other one, um, only with one left, with, with, with left eye only to tell their leader what had happened. Now, I, I don't necessarily believe everything I read in Byzantine sources, but even if it's partly true, even if it's not true at all, the impression that the emperor is trying to create is one of military power. This is not a state that you mess with. Uh, this is a place where um, there's invincibility, where the emperor is protected by God, and where the army will do you uh, very nicely. Uh, eventually, uh, the, the empire starts to recover and starts to go back onto the offensive. And again, as it happened before, it's caught very short, very quickly. Just before the First Crusade, there's a chronic um, collapse triggered by exactly the same thing of military attack coming from multiple sides at the same at the same time. At this time, there's again an enormous cash squeeze. And how the emperor tries to deal with, it, or how the emperors try to deal with it, is 
I suppose it's a form of quantity, a quantitative easing or financial chicanery, which depends which way you want to look at it. But the gold coin in Byzantium had been, in Rome, had been constant since the beginning, or since the, since the reforms of Anastasius here of 600 years, where there was a notional purity of 24 carats, which in fact can't be achieved, but it's near as damn it um, was. And what successive governments try to do is to water out the amount of gold that's being used. Really trying to be elastic, trying to pass off money that's not worth quite as much as you say. And, and it's a sort of attempt to deal with the fact that your expenditure and your income can't catch up with each other. And this kind of fiscal policy is not a, it's not a bad one, it's not a stupid one, but it, it's very quick to get out of control because, as you know, once the revenue starts to fall, it's no guarantee that they'll ever come back to where they were. And so and the empire once again comes to the brink of, of disaster. So unlike our, our, our parliamentary friends, uh, the story of, of Byzantium, I think, couldn't be further removed from um, how they use these words, uh, complexity, you know, language that doesn't mean anything, and so on. Uh, but the empire, through good and bad, managed to stay just on the right side of disaster. There were, there were victories snatched from the jaws of defeat on, on many occasions. But that's, that's a lot more that could be said for almost every other empire in history. The way that, the, that, that Byzantium endured uh, is, I think, one reason why US foreign policy analysts look and try and understand uh, what the secrets of it, its success were. Now, at the heart uh, of the empire was, of course, the great city of Constantinople, which you see here on a, a map from the 1420s. It, it was a magnificent city uh, filled with columns, a statue of Justinian facing east with his hand raised with three columns with pagan kings paying homage to him below him. Uh, there was a zoo, bath, uh, the hippodrome that could seat uh, 100,000 people with columns commemorating uh, military victories where horsemanship was celebrated and chariot racing, normally eight teams at a time uh, in four different colours in the standard way uh, to, to celebrate. Christians didn't approve of of uh, murder, even of barbarians, and so gladiating went, uh, went out of fashion. Uh, and in Constantinople, you had uh, the best relic stores uh, in Christendom, brought from Jerusalem by uh, the Emperor Constantine uh, and his mother, Helena, supposedly. Um, uh, and the churches form a, a central part of the Byzantine city and of, and of the glory of Constantinople here, the Church of St. Sophia. And this was a, this sent a very important and striking message to all, all visitors. Uh, the Russian leader Vladimir uh, sent out envoys, we're told by the Russian primary chronicle, to go and discover what they could about different religions because he felt it was time to move on from his, his own beliefs, which he recognized were perhaps rather crude. Um, and he sent envoys to see how the Muslims worshipped. And they came back and said, there's no happiness. There's much frenzy, people bow down and then they look hither and thither, side to side and sway, but there's no happiness. Compare this with Constantinople, they said. We didn't know whether we were in heaven or on earth. It's just, and they don't even try to describe what they saw. Just simply, we only know that God dwells among men and their service is fairer than any other nation. Uh, he's an orthodox, he's a, the person writing that is an orthodox monk, so we can take that maybe with a pinch of salt, but all visitors to Constantinople uh, have this kind of reaction. Uh, the Gothic king in the 5th century, century 
I've now, I've now heard, I've now seen with what, I, what I've heard only with my disbelieving ears. He'd seen the ships coming back and forwards, the ceremony, the army parading, the immense walls of the city. Truly the emperor is God on earth. Whoever raises a hand against him is guilty of attacking his own blood. Uh, so the Byzantines were aware of this effect. What a noble and beautiful city, said one crusader. How many monasteries and palaces are built with such wonderful skill? It would be too tedious to list all the relics and gold and silver treasures, but wow. So the Byzantines, they put on a good show, and they knew why. Uh, a text called the Book of Ceremonies, um, again, a compilation of processions and, and, and how, how uh, the ceremonial took place, made clear that they knew what they were doing. Uh, ceremonials had, the, had a very specific purpose, which is, quote, so that power can appear more majestic, and it grows in prestige, and it will win not only the admiration of foreigners, but also of our own subjects. So the same ceremonies took place from uh, year to year to try to show uh, the glory and the power. Some of these involved the emperor being crowned, surrounded by eunuchs, invisibly. Some involved him coming to the church of St. Sophia and taking up his place, not being seen. Uh, and then the, the, the clothes were pretty fancy. The fabulous vestment that the emperor wore on Easter Monday was a tunic of purple silk with gold thread enriched with precious stones and pearls as he walked past the shops on the way to the forum for people to see him. And, and these were all crucial visual reinforcements of imperial power, of the supremacy of Constantinople and of the emperor, and of course, of divine support. In the great palace in Constantinople, the emperor had a throne that would take him out of polite speaking distance, such a button. He had mechanical birds in gilded cages that reduced visitors to speechlessness, gilded lions whose tongues flickered uh, as, as people approached them. So I, I can see, easy to see if that's, only, if that's all you read about Byzantium, that's why you might think that, uh, that Byzantium is all smoke, all style and no substance. It's costumes, it's ceremony, it doesn't really mean anything. But as I said, this is all underpinned by a raw, the raw sinewy muscle of military power. And uh, they, they knew how this worked. All, young men in Byzantium were trained in martial arts. Um, the Emperor Morris, for example, uh, wrote a military manual saying that all men should practice at gallop speed to fire two arrows, quickly resheathe the quills, take your um, lance off your back, charge, place your lance back, shoot arrows again and do this at speed. Uh, he recommended that you should really make sure that you're well turned out um, when you are going into battle or just on parade. The more handsome the soldier is, he said, in his armament, then the more confidence he gains in himself and the more fear he inspires in his enemy. The military culture reinforced by these, uh, these, uh, these columns of, with, uh, with victories that we see some here and so on. So in the, in the Hippodrome alone, um, commemorating, you know, I'm going to, which ones? But anyway, so um, uh, our army was a, was, was a regular military service and the army competence was extremely high. Uh, the big problem, of course, was when you had, uh, as the Byzantines did, some of the great adversaries uh, of, of history coming against you. The Normans, who conquered, as we know, Great Britain, uh, knocked out southern Italy in about 10 years and quickly set their targets on taking out the Byzantine Empire as well. Their leader, Robert the Weasel, in his own lifetime was known as terror of the world. 
they were astonishingly adept at storming uh, fortified locations, part of the reason why there was a big, big Norman contingent on the, on the First Crusade. Extremely ambitious and outstanding in, in, in cavalry charging. The Turks of Central Asia, who came eventually became the Ottomans, uh, were one of a string of impressive steppe nomad peoples who dominated Central Asia from the beginning of time and ultimately the most successful because they remained where they were. The Avars, the Huns, the Goths, the Vandals, these are all names that schoolboys are taught as, as bywords for uh, aggression and military um, uh, prowess. And, and worse, the Byzantines became uh, a magnet, not just for visitors, but they became a magnet for enemies. They learn from the Byzantines, the neighbors. They find out how to do deals with them. They see how the Byzantines attack. And to keep adapting military tactics isn't always easy. So when the Turks first appear in Asia Minor in the 11th century, for example, uh, the Byzantines struggle to work out how to deal with them. They've been used to Arab attacks on a regular basis, normally attacking through the summer months. But the Turks bring with them these squat Central Asian ponies with rocks as hard as hooves. They move like eagles, flying like wolves, screaming for their lunch. And they take a while, but it soon becomes clear that the Western heavy cavalry charger is the most effective weapon to use against quick Turkish raids. And so they open themselves up. But Byzantium needs to constantly adapt to deal with the emergence of new enemies, with new technologies, with new threats of different competence and of different durability. And so one standard Byzantine um, scheme was to pay tribute, to allow things to blow themselves out, show the benefits. And, and, and it's, it's obviously a lot cheaper to pay someone not to beat you up than to go to the hospital afterwards. So, unlike some cultures, the Byzantines are very open-minded, although it, it, it might seem the other way around, that if you're surrounded by these hostile enemies, all desperate to conquer Constantinople, um, that the Byzantines are hugely cosmopolitan. So documents from the middle of the, or end of the 11th century, I mean, the list of different nationalities living in Constantinople, witnessed by all sorts of different sources, Armenians, Scandinavians, Normans, Angles and Saxons, Icelanders, Russians, Venetians, Genoese, Pisans, Amalfitans, Jews, North Africans, South Africans, I mean Sub-Saharan Africans. The list goes on and on and on. You find um, men in Iceland saying, I am too bored to live on this island. I want to go and explore because a man hasn't lived until he's seen the southern oceans and hasn't seen the city of Constantinople. And he comes to Constantinople and he finds imperial service. The emperor is keen to attract these kind of men, um, military, but also whose loyalty can be bought. Uh, you find Harold Hardrada, who, um, as luck would have it, was defeated at Stamford Bridge, otherwise we'd be talking Norse today. Uh, comes to, he spends time in Constantinople, also in imperial service. He develops a sort of flying bomb. He works out that the, that the naphtha that comes out of the Crimean um, uh, flat fields uh, can be mixed with pine resin. And if you paint this on the side of a bird and ignite it and send it back to its nest in the city walls, it's very effective. Uh, we have Anglo-Saxon rebels, or Anglo-Saxon nobles, who can't bear life running from William the Conqueror, who come to Constantinople to find sanctuary. Uh, Turks live there. There are mosques in Constantinople, synagogues. It's a hugely tolerant society, which is a key reason for its success. And very keen to uh, develop and cultivate their web of contacts across the known world. And, and they're very shrewd how they do it, as you would expect. 
they, uh, they, they isolate one um, Caucasian prince, and he's given a very large house in Constantinople. And in, in the, in the uh, administrative diplomatic handbook, we did this, they said, the emperor says, in order to excite all the other princes and to give them a similar eagerness to submit to the Romans. And sure enough, a few months later, a letter comes in from one of them, grumbling about why this, one, why this other man alone enjoyed an imperial stipend while the rest of us got nothing. Uh, the generosity of the crown, and of the emperor specifically, and of Byzantium, was very well known, as was their wealth. And uh, it was a very good way of, of uh, getting people to come and trade with you, rather than always, always to fight. Uh, so, Byzantium isn't always a soft touch. There's a powerhouse underneath it. Uh, but men, and mostly men, I'm afraid, uh, if you want to find fame and fortune between 500 AD and, well, the Crusades offer us something different. But all those types of men who became Templar Knights and who became Crusaders for 600 years came to Constantinople. Uh, there was assiduous cultivation of neighbours, uh, no problem dealing with the Muslims. There was great mutual respect, in fact, uh, between the two states, between the Byzantine Empire and, uh, and the Sasanian Empire of Persia and then their successor states. Regular prisoner exchanges, uh, even people who you fought with were invited to, were invited to Constantinople uh, to be shown a, 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 good, a good time. In 561, one of the most remarkable documents I know, uh, it was a 50-year truce agreed between the two great empires of uh, late antiquity, the Persians and Byzantines. And uh, you couldn't have a foreign office do it better. The texts were in the, the texts of the agreement were negotiated intensively uh, for a long time. Eventually, they were written down into Greek and Persian. The Persian was then translated into Greek, and the Greek translated into Persian. Then the two texts were set side by side, and then they let the lawyers go through it. And the language retightened up, saying it's not it's not just a year. We're defining a year in the old manner, which means 365 days. So no avoid avoidance of all doubt, uh, and. Uh, the, the, the text itself talks about how both country, both states may use each other's public postal system, how they should treat defectors, well, the answer is don't, uh, who should be paying customs duties, how that would be enforced, to make sure that trade was only at set points, which was very important for both states, keen to collect customs revenues, which is the main, a main, a primary source of their incomes. And so to make it always pass through the same points allowed monitoring to go on. So the Byzantines cooperated with their neighbours very um, constructively and understood that, that peace was a, was a very good thing. And I think we're all a, a gilded generation that haven't seen uh, wars up front ourselves, but the link between prosperity and peace, I think, is, is very easy to overlook. And, and in this period particularly, the, the primary goal of the empire was to provide stability because everything else flowed from it. So this was the reason why uh, there were networks of agents, spies, envoys, collecting information, bringing it back to um, the empire. This is, this is why the patriarch freaks out when the, the Russians arrive on their ships. How could they have slipped through the net? Who are they? Find out. Let's see who they are. <coughs> and of course, it's much cheaper to fight. I mean, to, to, it's much cheaper to buy favour or to strike deals than it is to fight. So tributes paid to Attila the Hun, typically seen as a sign of great weakness, 
actually I don't think should be looked at in, in those ways, that those, those terms at all. In fact, particularly tribal peoples tended to implode. Very difficult to control these kind of societies. Occasionally, hugely charismatic leaders, Attila, Genghis Khan, Mongols and so on, shows you that they, th these, these societies also flourished and then splintered. And as a historian, as the Byzantines were, they understood that. And so letting some pressure off the valve wasn't necessarily uh, a problem, except in the short term. And so when Attila is paid, uh, demands and is paid, uh, paid a, a tribute or a ransom tribute, really, uh, you find men having to sell their wives' jewellery and furniture in the markets to pay for the new taxes that have been levied. But the long-term gain um, was, was worth it. And, and some of these um, concessions they made didn't break the bank. Some of it was how it was portrayed. So with the Pechenegs, Pechenegs, uh, ferocious, I've already said, they, but they weren't mad for um, linen, brocade, pretty bits of leather straps, bits of, bits of fabric, pepper. And this wasn't an expensive way to keep them on site. What was more difficult with the Pechenegs uh, is that uh, I think they sometimes, like, like unruly children, cross the line. So there's a very careful disclaimer when dealing with the Pechenegs. Make sure before you get off the boat in the back seat that you take hostages from them and you put them on your boat. And whatever you do, do not get off, do not give them anything because I'm afraid we won't ever see you again. So I, so I wonder how many times it went wrong before they made sure that all of their diplomats knew about that. But the diplomatic went over vast distances. So in the, in the 6th century, uh, there's a diplomatic mission where um, a, a Byzantine envoy is sent thousands of miles into the bowels of Central Asia, far beyond Samarkand. He finds the, 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 the Turkic, not Turkish, the Turkic Kagan. He finds him sitting in a two-wheeled golden chair, or the next time in a golden bed supported by four golden peacocks with a big cart stuffed with uh, silver animal sculptures next door to discuss alliances with, uh, against, the, against the Persians. Uh, the Emperor Heraclius, very I'm very happy to deal with uh, bestial, gold-loving tribes of hairy men. No problem at all if they could be, if they could be our, our, our allies. And this sense of keeping an eye on what is going on, who is who, seems to me entirely, not, not just common sense, but explains why the Byzantine Empire was so astonishingly successful. Great effort went into um, priming the envoys, giving them training. Uh, they should be gracious, noble and generous, and should, should be men who speak only good of their own country and of the enemy. Sometimes it seems, according to a military manual, which may make it all look better than it really is, but you know, before an envoy goes away, a list of topics is prepared and presented, and the envoy is then asked how he would deal with each of them under various assumed circumstances. I, I can't think of the Foreign Office or our intelligence agencies doing things in any other way. So well briefed, they're taught about what kind of customary oaths are permissible and can be taken because they reflect something that is right or, and what can't. So they're very effective ambassadors. And in fact, the Byzantines quite often will use natives. So there are envoys that come to England in 1100, or about 1100, uh, sent to Henry I, almost certainly led by um, a monk from Abington who brought an arm of one of the saints with him. Um, and, it, and it doesn't cause a stir back here because he's a man coming home. There may be messages from the emperor, but the arrival of a big imperial delegation produces something different. So 
we think, and my, my children think, that the 21st century, it's a new age of discovery where we're all interconnected and uh, you, know, you can Facebook anyone at any point in the world uh, whenever you like, but this was the Byzantine world. Its contacts may have been slower, but they stretched from Iceland through all of northern Africa, Ethiopia, deep into, um, deep into, into Eastern Asia. Uh, I've, we've talked a little bit about the Book of Ceremonies, and I know we, I'm sure you, well, I, maybe you don't have any questions, but I will rush through my, my, my last bit um, about the flexibility of ceremonial void, but yes, the complexity of the state uh, and how the bureaucracy functions, that it's a highly developed and sophisticated. So in fact, all this I, I, I'll come on to, I'll just leave my last story, um, which is about how the Byzantines um, managed to cope I've said that the big problem is always when you have two threats that are concurrent, and then it's very difficult to, to deal with uh, economically. Uh, but on the other hand, what the Byzantines did was they realized that they had, to pick, they had to pick their battles carefully whenever they could. But having the right imagery that went with it was everything. So the last, last one I'll leave you with uh, is... Uh, so my mosaics... Okay, there we are. Uh, is, a, is, a, is a, a visitor to Sri Lanka in the 6th century. He arrives, and he finds out that one of his predecessors had, uh, had come to uh, an, well, an island just off the southern coast of Sri Lanka about 30 years beforehand. And he's told a story about him, which sums up everything about uh, the Byzantine Empire. It sums up their exchange, their contact, how they're perceived. Uh, soon after his predecessor had arrived, a wise old Persian merchant also arrived. And the king brought these two men in front of him and said, I've heard a lot about your respective realms. Which one of your two kings is more powerful? So the Persian merchant goes into great detail and explains how and the tribes that the Persians have subjugated. And uh, the, the Byzantine merchant says nothing. And the king says, you're not saying anything. He says, I don't need to use my words. You should use your eyes because these two kings are in front of you, to which there's general bafflement. So uh, he hands the king a Byzantine gold coin and a Persian silver miliarisi, or it's a Persian silver dirham. And he says to the king, here are our two kings. You may judge for yourself. So the king looks at the coins in front of him. He turns them over again and again. The numisma was, was made of pure gold. It shone and was beautiful to look at. The Persian silver coin was, in a word, silver. And that was enough to present its comparison with the gold coin. So the king, turning them over again and again, looks at them both and then says, about the, looks, praises the numisma and says, truly, the Romans are splendid, powerful and wise. So my 21st century thought for the day is, if we did that again, would you rather have a dollar, a euro, or a yuan? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>